Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All things come to an end. Journeys, lives, you know the score. But every ending, most endings, in fact, lead on to new things. The story that ends for you just might be starting a story for someone else or a hundred people. You never really know the impact you have on the lives of strangers. Little bits of cruelty and kindness can fester or infect can cleanse and encourage and there's no real telling where the lilt of a butterfly's wing might land on the wind today we end the four-part series Toda Americana which has seen our protagonist a young and somewhat gender-fluid preteen named Alex leave his old life in West Virginia behind after the murder of his father by a notorious outlaw and the subsequent fall into insanity of his mother Alex's quest takes him onto the rails, where he comes across an up-and-coming thug named Cunny Marco. He escapes Cunny Marco with the help of a kind stranger and moves on to Cincinnati, where he comes across a demon of sorts, possessing a young woman. Alex frees the girl of this possession with the help of a strange, golden voice that seems to take control of him, ultimately giving him the edge to beat the demon in a game of riddles. Alex's travels then continued on the rails, where he comes across Nine Fingers, a black-fingered musician with whom he plays a game of truths, and wins, though the golden voice that helps Alex this time almost kills him through the stress of using it. Alex survives the night with Nine Fingers, and gains a totem in turn, a smooth, engraved black stone which Nine Fingers promises will see Alex safely to the end of his journey. But Alex parts with the stone a ways down the line after coming to the aid of a lost little girl whose ghost still inhabits the train platform beside the place of her death. Which is where we rejoin our protagonist, sitting in the dark on a lonely platform on the American Great Plains, waiting for the last train out of station, a train that will carry Alex to his final destination come hell or high water. But before we get to all that, this month's recommendations. This month's random horror recommendation is Magic, a seemingly forgotten 1978 horror thriller starring Hannibal Lecter himself, Anthony Hopkins. 
The story follows Hopkins' character, the odd but affable Corky, as he skyrockets to fame with his new puppet act. Corky was something of a failure in his old act as a magician, but the addition of the foul-mouthed puppet Fats to his act has really turned things around. Of course, as with any show with a puppet in it, things soon take a dark turn as the pressures of newfound success start to mount on poor old Corky. This movie is a goddamn blast, and I can't believe most people have never heard of it. Admittedly, a horror movie with a puppet at the center of it might be a hard sell, but I assure you it's actually incredibly good. Hopkins takes his role dead serious, and the plot doesn't go where you think it might at pretty much any time in the story. The movie is streaming in a few places online at the time of this podcast, and it's a real fun ride if you're a fan of old-school psychological horror. Definitely check it out. I'll leave a link in the description. This month's literature recommendation, in keeping with our focus on travel stories for the duration of Toda Americana, is Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. It's no understatement to say that Heart of Darkness is one of the most influential novellas in history, and that, since its release in 1909, has gone on to influence some of the greatest narrative minds of the last century. The story concerns the upriver travels of a man named Marlowe toward an almost mythical figure named Mr. Kurtz. Kurtz is an ivory trader of some note, and his presence can be felt all along the river. Marlowe is tasked with retrieving Kurtz, and it is hinted that the company employing Kurtz wants him to be removed from his post, returned to civilization, and possibly hanged. Though it's not a terribly long story, only slightly longer in word count than Toda Americana itself, it's incredibly profound. The writing is deft, subtle, and dark, exploring themes like racism, colonialism, and the nature of civilization in just 30,000 words with an almost uncanny and unflinching sharpness. I highly recommend Heart of Darkness, and consider it an absolute must-read even above most other titles I've discussed in my recommendation section. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Now, without further ado, today's story. Toda Americana, Part Final. seed of the western tree, the great monolith seated by the eastern grove, carried by winds pushing from the furious south to scatter across the earth. I am the last seed of the western tree. They have whispered to me in the dark and the silence. In the place between where the pages touch, I have found them. They never stopped speaking. They are implacable. I am the last seed of the western tree. I will be buried as I am, consumed by the earth, only to return as something great, something beyond the ken of years, spreading my great arms to drop my poison fruit across the universe. I am the last seed of the western tree. 
I was meant to fall, but I was never meant to sprout. Despite everything, I will grow. I am growing. I am the last seed of the western tree. All that I can give shall be returned to me. All that I can take will be given in turn. Common Leads The Book of the Five The 1030 westbound. Last stop, Colby, Kansas. Pulled into station three minutes late. Doors already open. The smell that beggars' description rolled out of those open doors like the breath of a predator, rich with rotten meat. The thing that had slipped beneath the boardwalk hadn't made any noise since it left me, though I suspected it still lingered, awaiting some prize from whatever the train had brought. There was no way but forward, I knew, and so I stepped aboard without hesitation. The doors slid shut slowly behind me, black, where the train the girl had departed on was white. They moved without porters to guide them, and the train moved the second they'd closed, accelerating to a high pace in seconds. The forward motion nearly put me on my ass. Nervous, despite not wanting to be, I looked around the cabin I'd stepped into. Bleak is, I guess, the best word to describe it. Soft red velvet and stitched diamond patterns adorned the tops of the walls, drinking up the rattling of the tracks below, so well it was more than a constant buzzing. The rest of the walls were dark wood, not quite black, but serving that effect. A copper plate adorned the wall, bolted to the woodwork. It read, recovered from the wreckage of the Golden Fist, 1885 and swooping, elaborate text. The rest of the room was empty. No chairs, no tables, just wood floors of the same dark paneling as the walls laid door to empty door. The doors were beaten steel and looked thin by any measure, almost too skinny to risk opening or closing, but I did just that after I decided lingering wasn't a good idea. By what logic, I don't know. I moved further and further from the engine. The thin doors rattled badly in their slots, so that they gave me a start nearly every time I used one. Empty rooms led on to empty rooms, until I realized I'd walked maybe ten more passenger cars than most trains offered. I turned around and there they sat, looking like dough dumped out of an oil boiler. Left to right, they were fat, skinny, and lumpy, their features too deformed for descriptions like man or woman. Smoky lantern lit from the sconces on the walls cast them in watery shadows, so even in their deformity they were formless, shadows in and of themselves. Slush, the wet remnants of an eye, floated in a crystal jar at the center of the table where they sat. As I watched, it watched me, twisting like a jellyfish to get a better view. Here, one said. Here indeed. A similar voice, but from another mouth. A nasty, hooked tooth hung from that one's gums. 
I watched the one to the left pull it free and stick it in her mouth. Her, because why not? It moved the tooth around with its tongue until, satisfied, it curled its lip inward and used the tooth to scratch at its chin. Hungry, thirsty, to eat, to drink, all is offered. I'm fine, I said, torn between wanting to look behind me and also knowing somehow that if I did, I might never turn around again. I hesitated. But thank you. They grumbled amongst themselves, and I saw the fat one had switched places with the lumpy one, an amorphous change that played out like a wiggling of fat, dirty candle wax melting into a familiar form. Polite, one said. No need to be clever. Another. You won't leave this place. The third, and none of them, said this last bit. A fourth voice. I eyed the hem of the red and gold tablecloth that obscured the bottoms of them. What does it look for? Is it a boy? Is it a girl? Is it coming or going? Can it solve a riddle without cheating? Yes, I said. Where is your father? The fourth voice again. Dead, I said, after some hesitation. They chittered amongst themselves. Death isn't a place. Death is a place. Slip, slip, dead. Death is a place, I said. Pain stabbed the place behind my left eye, though I couldn't feel the voice trying to speak through me. They grumbled and nodded. The sister who'd worn the tooth last had it ripped out of her mouth by the slender sister. You are sisters and not, I said, pain tearing into my brain. The voice was there, then, and it moved on its own. Water witched is water witched. Thing feeling and seeing without hands, tasting and breathing without a tongue. The pain was nearly unbearable. I clasped a hand over my eye, digging at it with my fingernails to get at whatever was hurting me. Go away, they said calmly, the fourth voice rumbling up through all their mouths. You aren't welcome here. We want the prophet, not some petty voice. There followed a silence so stunning and profound that I nearly lost my breath. The pain in my head vanished in a second, and I fell to my knees in relief. When I removed my palm, it was smeared with blood. My left eye had gone blind. Jesus Christ, I said to myself, did I actually do it? Fingers probed tenderly over my eye, and I found the ball of it intact, though painful shreds of skin hung from my eyelid. I tugged at one and pulled free a slice of clear, bloody flesh the length of a postage stamp. Brown hairs, a chunk of my eyebrow, still clung to it. Fuck. They laughed. The vision in my left eye bled back into clarity. I held a hand over it anyway, 
trying to staunch the steady flow of blood from my torn skin. Pain, simple, natural pain, made my knees weak. I desperately wanted to sit, but I kept on my feet, knowing any slip-up could send things from bad to worse. Feeling weak, soft-legged, no problem, the fourth voice. Just rest. Are you hungry? Thirsty? We have food and drink. The fourth voice again, clearly masculine where the others were female. We ask little in return. Just a trifle. Something small, you'll never miss it. I'm just riding until Colby, I said. Thank you. But my ticket was just to ride, and I don't have cash for the meal car. Clever. Thinks he is. Thinks she is anyway. So you're sure you'll live that long? The fourth voice asked. The fringe of the tablecloth puffed outward when it spoke, moved by some heavy wind. And longer, I said. We arrive at midnight. Late hour. Witching hour. We are hungry ourselves and we've brought no food. The lumpy sister said, she now wearing the tooth. Perhaps we've invited some. Soft little girl. Hardy little boy. A challenge then, I said. I stake my life, my safety, and nothing of mine gone to you that I can't give again and freely. The words felt alien and right all the same. The chattering gold teeth were gone. Couldn't reach this place, wherever it was. Name your stakes. All that will have. That and more. That and all. And all the world. And all the worlds beyond. And all the lives to follow. Our chariot carries us beyond the pages of the book. Beyond the ink on the page. We carry ourselves where we desire to be. We'll have all of you. The fourth voice said. Carrie and Reek followed his words this time, clouding the dark interior of the train. I could hear nothing of the tracks now, or of wind. We'd passed beyond the simple realities of Kansas to some other place, a murk that lay between things. That bleak darkness where I sat alone for a single, painful second as the girl embarked on her last train ride. We'll have all of you, it repeated. All you've been, all you'll ever be, in this life and all the lives to come. You will know no return. No gambles, no skill, no deception will free you from the chain I fit around your throat. Your eyes and teeth will be mine. Your prophet's tongue will rest in my mouth and I will ride your carcass into the dust of Arabeshi. I will strap you beneath the Badlands pyramids and flay your bones naked until the end of time. That's a bit more than I think I put up, I said. I couldn't keep my hands from shaking. But if it's all in, then it's all in. His threats were so extraordinary that they almost didn't make sense. But he said the words. But as he said the words, 
Shapes and pictures took form in my mind. I saw a great red place, a wasted planet, strewn with rotten cathedrals and fallen temples. Then, for just a moment, I was there, standing in the rocky dirt of a hostile world, canyons and cracked rocks stretching out before me. Every hundred yards or so was another religious building, mosques and ziggurats and churches made of blackened candle wax, blasted out single-room prairie churches, and great coliseums with thousands, even tens or hundreds of thousands, might pray. Things with exposed, blackened skulls and gray-winged bodies circled in the hundreds over these places, diving and ripping the flesh from the corpses littering the ground. I heard a scream, and a man stumbled by me, tearing at a black carpet swarming over him, millions of small, black centipedes. I saw the skeletal remains of a hand, mostly clean to flesh, grasping outside the swarm. Then it was gone, and the pile fell into a buzzing hump on the ground. I stifled a scream with my hands. Similar horrors played out over the landscape around me, and what I couldn't see, I could hear. Perfectly square clouds blocked the scant starlight overhead, and I saw they weren't clouds, but massive pyramids. They floated in the sky slowly, great abominations strapped with anchor chains to their bases, and blood fell like mist from their lacerated bodies. Beyond these horrors, a blasted moon hung in the sky, twirling on a crooked axis. Starlight reflected off it, and I realized it wasn't a moon at all, but a giant, severed head caught in the planet's gravity. It turned to reveal a broken jaw and a single blind eye in the center of its forehead. As I watched, a haze of dust from its rotting scalp caught in the atmosphere, burning to a shimmering trail of comets. I heard the lash of a whip and turned to see a dark figure tall and clad in a dirty ashen robe, standing before a rock. And on that rock I saw myself, the adult I might become, with bloody sockets where my eyes would have been. Chains held me naked against the rock, where I screamed and begged in a language I'd never heard. The tall figure turned, and I saw my own eyes smeared across its empty face, like paint. I was back on my knees in the train car, my sweating face pressed to the floorboards. I had moved closer to the table somehow, too close to that rippling tablecloth. I tripped over myself scrambling away, just before a well-muscled gray arm slid to where I had been kneeling. It found nothing, and slid back again just as quick. The sisters tittered. Come visit me. I wiped sweat from my face. I couldn't tell which of them rambled off the poem or what it meant, but the threat rang clear. Just give me your eyes, boy, and I'll let you leave. The fourth voice said, 
I won't take everything from you. Just what I need. Go ahead and do it, Alex, my father said from behind the table. I saw him sitting where the lumpy sister had been. His body was drawn and skeletal, but I could see his mustache and the familiar lines of his face below empty sockets and shadow. Stop it, I said. Baby girl. My mother now, taking the slender sister's place. Blind isn't so bad. What did you expect running away like you did? You're just a handful of trouble waiting to happen, you know? That was one of her lines. A handful of trouble waiting to happen. A relic of a childhood I'd all but forgotten. Give him what he wants and come back to me, where it's safe. He'll take care of both of us here. Stop, I said again. You think I want you to come to Colby anyway? My father said, crossing his arms. You're just a fucking disappointment. Couldn't be born a boy, bad at being a girl. I left to get the fuck away from you, you little fucking queer. Dressing like a boy and keeping odd company. Goddamn shame is what you are. Shut up, I said, clenching my fists. My mother moaned. Oh, oh God. She said, the fat sister became one of the orderlies from the mental hospital. My mother was bent over the table in front of him, hair curled up in his fist as he had his way with her. She had the slack-jawed face of the terminally brain-damaged, but her voice rang clear. Look at what they're doing to me here, Alex. They won't stop until you get back. I need help and you just left me here. You left me helpless and retarded, and now this is what happens to me every fucking day. You are quiet, I hissed at them, feeling something like golden venom slipping over my tongue. The pain that should have come did not, but instead a hot, pleasant feeling like you get from stretching a sore muscle. There was a sound like a gunshot and the eyeless impression of my father doubled over and turned back into the lumpy sister. The orderly and my mother rippled back as well. Don't do that again, the fourth voice said. This is my home. Be quiet, I said again. The entire table jumped with a bang. The sisters deflated to wave back and forth like palm fronds. Then they were themselves again. The jellied eye on the table searched over me, angry despite not having any real way to express itself. The slender sister took the hooked tooth and planted it in her mouth. Name your challenge, I said, and stop wasting my time. The sisters grumbled amongst themselves, bodies switching places rapidly so that any of the three occupied the center body all at once. They turned their gummy smiles on me in unison. Tell a story you've never heard. It's never happened. I glared at them, set my jaw, and spoke. Farmer Burnside came out of Iowa shortly after our country tried coming back to its senses in the late 1800s. Before he was anybody, he was nobody. 
like most folk. Poor, educated enough to not look foolish, and a hard worker. He built muscle tossing hay bales and breaking rocks and pulling stumps, as well as most anything else you might do on a farm. While he never owned land himself, he was respected in his neck of the woods and allowed a certain degree of freedom as a boy. He used that to sneak around in Union Army camps during the day to watch the men wrestle and even spar sometimes. By 19, he was maybe the strongest boy in the county, and certainly the most spry. He could stand one-legged on a fence post and flip himself forward, landing on the opposite foot on a post six feet away. He could outrun most dogs, if only for a bit, and had a habit of climbing most anything he thought worthy of the effort. He taught himself wrestling by watching it and by practicing with, or on, whomever would give him the time of day. That number dwindled in his town and then his county until nobody would risk wrestling the upstart on account of how damn near impossible it was to beat him. Eventually, he faced the Springfield Strangler and, at the age of 19, was recognized as hands down the best catch-as-all catch-can wrestler in the state of Iowa. People laughed when they saw him coming and talked about him for a lifetime after they watched him leave. He came with the rising sun, preferring to walk town to town in the earliest part of the morning to enjoy the fresh air. He dressed plain in a pair of worn overalls he was almost too big for. He'd wrestle any comer, any contender, no matter how they came to him, so long as they weren't drunk or apt to get themselves hurt. In no time, most every state in America was home to a man who'd been pinned by Farmer Burnside. Traveling circus built up around him, a menagerie of folks who followed the wanderer from place to place and eventually country to country. He wrestled folks from Brazil to Japan and always left a spirit of camaraderie in his wake no matter the bout. The word of how good a wrestler he was reached the wrong ears and there were some things in the world thought they might make theirs what was his. In Lincoln, Nebraska, a hulk of a devil who called himself Ocker challenged Farmer Birdside to a test of strength. Ocker went to a cornfield beside the town, where dozens of people were watching, and ripped the farm's water tank right out of the ground. He told Farmer Burnside that no man could match that strength, and, to his surprise, Father Burnside agreed with him. He said, but maybe a man might outmatch it. So Farmer Burnside dragged one mighty forearm through the ground and irrigated the whole field from a nearby river. And knowing he was beaten, the devil hung his head and left. In Enid, Oklahoma, a devil named Dram found Farmer Burnside and challenged him to a wrestling match. Burns won easy, outclassing Dram every step of the way. But Dram was a devil and so had some influence over animals. He hypnotized a bear and wrestled it to a false win, telling Farmer Burnside he could never match that skill. Farmer Burnside told Dram he'd never make a show out of hurting an animal, and so no, he couldn't match that skill. But maybe he could outmatch it. So Farmer Burnside went to one of Oklahoma's driest oil fields and brought drill pipe along with him. Dram watched as he jammed pipe after pipe into the ground 
until black American crude was shooting high into a cloudless sky. Farmer Burnside had wrestled oil itself out of the ground, and so Dram knew he was beaten. He hung his head and left. After this, none of the devils on earth or in that murky place between places wanted anything to do with Farmer Burnside. None save one, who called himself Belial and traveled with his cave on his back like a turtle. Belial found Farmer Burnside in Snapmare, Kansas, where he was teaching a wrestling class to children. Belial saw Farmer Burnside and was afraid of him, knowing he could never beat him in a fair fight. So Belial endeavored to be more devious than the demons who preceded him. He lured the children and the children's parents into his cave of dreams, the shell he carried on his back. There he swindled and cheated all of them until every soul in town owed him a debt. This was easy for Belial, if tiring, but he didn't care much for the souls of the townspeople. He wanted Farmer Burnside's skill and strength. Belial found him the next day in the town square, where Farmer Burnside was looking for the children. Belial pretended to be one of those he'd taken, wearing the boy's skin and talking in his voice but Farmer Burnside saw the devil for what he was and jumped on him. It wasn't long before Belial was wrapped up in a hold, unable to move and barely able to breathe. Give back the children and people of this town and I'll let you go, Farmer Burnside said. He didn't expect the devil to laugh at him. They live in my house with me now, that I carry here on my back, he said. You can't hurt me without hurting them. You have no power. Farmer Burnside saw this was true and thought long and hard before coming up with a plan. How about a bet, devil? He asked, knowing devils couldn't resist a wager. Such was true of Belial, who licked his lips when he thought of the possibilities. What are your terms? You let go of those souls in your possession, and I'll hang myself by the neck, Farmer Burnside said. Every minute I can stand hanging there without dying, you gotta push back your collections on their debts by a year. And, if I can hang long enough that everybody lives out a natural life before you come collecting, then you'll count those debts repaid. The devil laughed at this, but Farmer Burnside continued. If I can't save every soul in town, you can have what you want from me. But if every debt finds itself repaid, I get to drag you to hell personally. Belial soured at the last term, but he could find no way the man could pull it off. Even the stoutest of men died after twelve minutes on the rope. Twelve years was a blink of an eye to a real devil like Belial, so why not take the bet? Perhaps some of the older souls might escape, but the children would remain his, as would Burnside. I accept, Belial said forming his own plans. So Belial and Farmer Burnside went with all the town to Hangman's Hill, where the gallows tree sat against the rising sun. Farmer Burnside allowed Belial to pick the rope, as this was part of their terms, and then threw the noose around his neck. He gave the teary-eyed folk a nervous nod of his head and then leapt from the gallows stand. Even Belial was shocked. He'd snap his neck for sure but Farmer Burnside gave a laugh as he bounced at the end of the rope 
bright and cheerful, as though he was wearing nothing more than a necktie. Belial looked around in amazement as all the crowd joined in laughter. Farmer Burnside had performed just this trick a dozen times or more around America, often telling the crowd to keep it a secret if travelers came asking about him so as not to ruin the surprise. In truth, his neck was strong enough he'd hung as long as an hour before, whistling Dixie all the while. Belial cursed and stormed, letting all the souls he'd gathered out of the house on his back. They filled the townspeople, and the townspeople laughed even harder, now that real joy was available to them again. But Belial wasn't finished with Farmer Burns just yet. He hopped around and poked and prodded at Farmer Burnside, but this had been in their terms as well, and so Farmer Burnside asked the crowd not to interfere for any reason. A half hour passed, an hour. The mirth had gone out of the crowd now, as Farmer Burnside's face grew red with strain. Nearly all of the crowd was free of their debts now, only the youngest children would live much longer. They begged Farmer Burnside to come down from the rope, but he smiled and shook his head, telling them he wasn't going to leave a snowball's chance in hell of Belial collecting. Another half hour passed, and the youngest child in town, a two-year-old girl named Stephanie Rogers, remained the only possible survivor. The townspeople made fools of themselves, telling Farmer Burnside to come down. Ninety-two was as old as almost anybody in the entire world had ever grown. They said they'd tell the girl when she needed to die that she would do it gladly when she understood what he'd done for her. Farmer Burnside smiled and shook his head. I won't condemn a child to death, no matter when that death may come, he said, and the people were ashamed. His words had chastised them almost as much as knowing they had condemned him with their fast behavior with Belial. But his face was growing almost purple, and his eyes looked dark and bloodshot. There's no way she'd live that long, Belial whispered in Farmer Burnside's ear as the world grew darker. Come down off the rope. Farmer Burnside denied him. Surrender now, and I'll ensure you survive this. Come down off the rope. Farmer Burnside denied him. They are not worth it. Come down off the rope. For a third time, Farmer Burnside denied him. Belial watched in horror as a cloud passed over and away from Stephanie Rogers, a sign that Farmer Burnside had outdone him. And with that passing cloud, so passed Farmer Burnside having hung for full 129 minutes until, finally, the strain killed him. The townspeople burst into tears and snatched up every stick and rock and sharp thing they could find, hounding Belial into his house and out of their town. They buried Farmer Burnside on the hill. The gallows tree felled to build his casket, and no man or woman was ever hanged in Snapmare again. Townspeople lived in the town until the last of them, young Stephanie Rogers, died at the ripe old age of 128, cared for by a family who never understood why she refused to leave the ugly old town of Snapmare, Kansas. And Belial was never seen from again, I said, 
The fourth voice huffed in displeasure. He had grown quiet as I told the story, words falling out over my tongue in a way I'd never felt before. I hadn't even felt real in the telling of it, truth be told. It was as though I had ceased to be, but only the story remained. There was a dull sort of ache behind my left eye, but nothing like the burning needle. The story's true, we know it is. The story is false, facts were changed. Belial made a fool of. They cackled. Certainly she's heard this before. Heard of a story is not heard a story. Belial deceived like a petulant child. They cackled again, and this time the table nearly split. It was struck so hard. Chips of laminate and splinters blew into the face of the slender sister, who sat in the middle seat. The nasty hooked tooth gleamed in her mouth. We accept. We do not accept. There was a long, uncomfortable pause. I reached into my pocket and found the first souvenir I'd picked up on this trip. A simple gift from a strange woman. We accept. A roar of displeasure shook the table, and that vibration carried through the train, changing the form of things as it passed. Rot set into the floorboards, the corners of the walls along the ceiling, a thick, fuzzy carpet that seemed almost alive. It filled the room with the stench of rotten cheese. Muscular gray arms emerged from beneath the tablecloth, and with them followed the slick, gray skull of something that might have once been a man. Its skin was like wet rubber pulled over a human skull. There were no eyes, no nose, and the mouth was rimmed with hard white teeth that formed a circle instead of ascribing to the shape of a human jaw. A tongue of ropey red muscle slid from between those teeth and split along its length, showing another mouth. Snake's fangs dotted the length of the meat. I do not accept, he said. The sisters deflated behind him, thinning into each other. Then the centermost of them shot toward me, using the hooked tooth like a scorpion stinger. I dodged and it slipped past my chest. It retracted over the table as the gray thing pulled his way into the cabin. I jumped forward and flipped open the knife the woman had given me, slamming it down on the jar containing the jellied eyeball. It split like firewood, down a single clean line that continued back into the iris of the floating eye. Blood and some viscous white fluid leaked out over the table, dripping down onto the gray thing's face. It screamed, and I backpedaled into the far wall, watching as it writhed and howled on the floor. It stopped and turned its face toward me. A sick laugh, the laugh of a terminally insane person, cracked out of its throat into the room. It moved its hands from its face to reveal the remnants of the eye coating its rubbery skull like a painting. I watched the iris I'd severed slide through the muck until it sat where the right socket should have been. Blood and whitish fluid haloed the eye in a hideous corona, extending over most of the thing's head and the right half of its face. Intuitive, it said, pushing itself to its feet, but pointless. The sisters deflated fully and were sucked under the table as he stood, 
re-emerging as a sort of cape that hung, or rather, grew, from his shoulders. Seven feet of solid, gray-skinned muscle loomed over me. A ragged loincloth covered him waist to knees, made of eyeless skins the same color and look as the sisters. The faces in that cloth moved to see me. Terrified, I backed all the way against the cabin door, switching the knife to my left hand. It felt hot now, wet to the touch and slightly sticky. Carrion stink, mixed with cheesy rot, filled my nose so badly I gagged. He stood with his arms out at his side, fingers long and ending in elegant black nails. This is my home, he said, his odd mouth forming into a sort of smile. My home, my rules. In this house of dreams, the only one who can win is me. No matter the game. He stepped forward and cupped my chin between his thumb and forefinger. Steel railroad ties had more give. Now what did I promise you? A visit to Arabesh? His tongue spoke, not the throat behind the teeth, and it extended to wrap around my neck. But first, your eyes and your tongue. I promised I'd take those first. I snatched his tongue with my right hand, pressing the mark the stone had left on me into the wet flesh. I had only hope that it would do something, but in a second he was screaming as scalding steam poured between my fingers. The tongue left my throat and wrapped around my wrist, splitting so that its thin, sharp teeth bit into my skin. I screamed, but I held fast. One of his big hands swung up and caught me in the temple, filling my head with stars and dropping me to my knees. I thought of Cunny Marco and all his promises back in that gun-cotton train yard. I remembered how dizzy I'd gotten when he slammed my face into that coal car, how I'd just wanted to give up so it would end. But I also remembered the knife that woman had given me. He struck again, howling in that same language a different me had begged in, strapped to that rock in that horrible place. I felt like puking. It hurt so bad and I could feel strength slipping out of my arm as his teeth tore it apart. But I fumbled the knife up where I could see it work and cut through his tongue. He screamed. I felt the tongue tighten on my arm and then fall off completely. Then I was flying backward through the open door of a train, hovering in open air for a second before I hit the ground. In the last second before I hit the dirt, which would have damn near broken every bone in my body, I caught a glimpse of something soft and red that made a quiet oomph when I hit it and slowed me down. Then I was rolling in the mud to the right of the track. A small town glowed in the night at the bottom of the hill. I knew it was Colby, but it was only a touch closer to me in this moment than when I had started out on this journey. The first blue touches of dawn lit the sky in the east, where the morning dew would already be turning to steam and rolling down the West Virginia hillsides, filling the valleys between the mountains. I saw the train, or what had been the train, for a brief second. The thing it really was screeched down onto the rails as it braked, buffeting the ground with a shower of sparks. Fat, 
black plates, like the shells over a beetle's wings, laid stacked front to back in a set of maybe thirty. The entire construction was about thirty-five yards long. Wavering purple light shone between the panels. You cut off my tongue, I heard him say, the fourth voice. It came from the door I'd been thrown from, which looked impossibly normal, set in the back of that alien thing. The train, his cave, I thought, had stopped twenty yards away from me, and I could see his arms gripping the doorframe, then his face. He fell forward onto the ground, spitting up blood. Give it back. I looked at my hand and saw his tongue in my fist, sputtering and black, thick, greenish gel leaking over my fingers. I dropped it, and the tongue writhed feebly in the dirt. I tried to push myself to my feet, and my right arm collapsed underneath me. I was nearly sick when I saw the burger the teeth had made of it. I was cut in more than a hundred places, some of them running together so that I could see the muscle working beneath the surface of my skin. It bled badly. Shit, I said, feeling on the edge of fainting. I pulled my shirt off and got to my knees, then my feet, keeping an eye on the thing as I wrapped my shirt tightly around my arm. Cold morning air prickled my naked chest. He stood on legs like tree trunks. The alien train car buckled behind him as he strode toward me, being pulled inside outward by the cape attached to his shoulders, the cloth made of a hundred eyeless faces. So much, he said. So much of you to take. The sun crested the ridge of the hill behind me, and yellow daylight spread over him. He hissed when it touched his skin, which gave off a light smoke. He put his hand over the painted-on eye and shrugged off the sunlight. The train car completely imploded, and then it was just him, the thing we'd traveled in hanging off his back like shreds of torn black rubber. I'm in the sun, he said, catching up to me. I'd hobbled to my feet, but it did little good. I could barely walk. I cradled my shredded arm against my chest when he kicked me in the small of my back. The blow sent me flying, and I skipped across the ground like a stone when I hit. It hurt so bad I screamed. Yes, like that, he said, kicking me again. This time the blow sent me up into the air and I felt a lurching sort of vertigo as I flew. I couldn't move anymore after the third kick. Something tore inside my chest, just under my ribs, and I felt a rush of numbness flood my whole body. My brain was getting me ready to die, turning the lights off before the coup de grace. Stop. I croaked, doing whatever I could to buy time. Somewhere beyond somewhere, in the darkness at the back of my brain, a voice spoke. Hold fast, it said. Beg me, he said, bending me over and tangling his fingers in my hair. Beg, I 
I'm not going to stop. No, I have you forever. I'm telling you to beg because it pleases me. I mumbled something and he stood, my entire body dangling from my scalp. I screamed again, feet trying to find the ground to keep me steady. I showed you how this would end, and here it begins. I cried. It wasn't hard. Harder to keep it down, in fact. The quick submission seemed to disappoint him. Perhaps I'll just sell you to Cornelia, he said, his other hand moving my chin, parting my lips with his thumb so he could see my teeth. His flat, formless face slipped in and out of focus. I was dying, or something close to it. Old Fahest. She's been offering trade for just news of a profit, he said. His fingers moved to other parts of my body, poking, prodding. He gripped the shredded flesh of my arm and squeezed. I thought my body had passed beyond pain, but I was wrong. I screamed and gripped his wrist trying to pull him off of me. No harm in a fresh favor. He spoke to himself as I clawed at him. Oh, does that hurt? Yes, I screamed. Yes. He let go of my arm and the temporary strength fled my limbs. The relief was an almost physical thing. He cleaned the bloody hand with the remnants of his tongue. It was already growing back. The shadow of the hill behind us fell down his face, bathing it in more sunlight. He saw my expression and laughed. It's not as bad as you'd think, he said. It's irritating, like you and your little brand and your little knife. He grabbed my throat and let his other hand drop away. It was like being held in place by welded steel. His fingers tightened and loosened, tightened and loosened. How does that feel? My toes tried to find purchase on the ground as he raised me inch by inch. I tried to hold on to his hand, my fingers barely able to curve around the meat of his thumb muscle. I asked you a question. When I ask you things, you speak. That is your life now. He didn't see the shadow passing over his face. Two feet, toes pointed down in silhouette. Cold, painful breath burned its way down into my lungs as he relaxed his fingers. I could feel every inch of my living muscle trembling with exhaustion. I tried to say something, but it came out in a croak. The shadow was moving faster now, as the sun crested the hill in full, rose in earnest on this part of the world. He relaxed his fingers, but didn't drop me. He comes, I rasped, with the dawn. The painted eye on the right side of his face widened as the shadow slipped past him, leaving only a single bisecting line where his nose would be if he had one. No, he whispered. No. He threw me to the ground and took a step back. I turned into the rising sun 
where trees stood in black silhouette. A man hung from that tree, body slack in death, swinging gently in a still breeze. In the sudden quiet, I knew both of us could hear the steady creak of the rope. The only other sound was the rasp of breath in my swollen throat. No, the thing said, taking another step back. The hangman's hand shot up to the rope in time with that first step and pulled down so that his entire body rose. Then his hands moved again and again until the hanged man had climbed his own rope and hung by one hand from the branch. He untied the knot keeping him there. The thing screamed a single word that sounded like a bucket full of water and gravel getting shook around. Then he turned and threw his cape of faces over his head so that it billowed out into a shape like that of the alien train car he'd thrown me from. The hanged man thudded to the ground, and then he was sprinting toward us. The thing's train car, his cave, popped into existence with a thud of displaced air, and he spared me a single glance back, raising a hand to drag me along with him. Then he thought better of it and jumped inside the thing he'd made with the cape. It attached itself to the train tracks and started moving. The hanged man shot over the ground past me and jumped into the moving train feet first, his hands out over his head and fists. A good six feet of rope fluttered behind the noose. He disappeared into the moving train car, and then the train car itself disappeared, leaving just him and the gray thing wrestling on the ground. They kicked up dust and flew over each other like cats in an alley fight. I don't know enough about wrestling to tell you what was really going on, but it was clear the hanged man was a shade shy of bored with the whole thing. He'd move and get the thing in a hold, then let him go and back off, just to get him in another hold. Then he rolled sideways, the thing's massive right arm snapped like a pencil. It howled in pain and tried to scramble away on its hands and knees. It looked far less formidable now and I realized it had shrank some. The hanged man smashed it down into the ground and grabbed the fleshy cloak, tearing it off with a wet rip that made me turn my head and puke. Nasty green jelly sprayed onto the dirt when the hangman threw it away. It caught fire in the sun, and I saw the individual faces curl and separate. They filled like balloons and sprouted arms, legs, bodies. Charcoal-colored things crawled and sprinted away from the burning cape, some of them dancing and jumping into the air before bursting into a shower of ash. The hanged man undid his noose and fitted it around the thing's neck. It was begging now and clawing at the rope as the hanged man dragged it past me, toward the tree. Our eyes met, his nothing more than ghostly pools of shadow, punctuated with tiny lights. The hanged man smiled at me, a broad, toothy grin. You did all right for a boy your age, he said. He gave me a thumbs up and kept walking, jerking the rope hard just once when the thing tried to grab me. But it wasn't the great thing anymore, not really. Slabs of muscle cracked like dry clay and fell from his arms and legs. The eyeless face crumbled and I saw two mostly human eyes searching the sky. 
by the time the hanged man had thrown his rope back over the branch. What remained was a slender, pretty man in a white and gold robe. He was screaming in Latin when the hanged man pulled him up to dangle. He was screaming in Latin when the hanged man pulled him up to dangle. I listened to him die for just a second. Then the hanged man cut the man's choking short by pulling down on his legs and the rope at the same time. There was a snap and a thump, and a splash of darkness rolled over the ground toward me. It was like the opposite of a lightning bolt, and when it had gone, so had they. The tree waved in the rising sun, and I, well, I died. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I came to in the town infirmary a few days later, having barely survived what the concerned lady doctor assured me was a terrible mauling by a strange dog. I'd lost a stub of finger on my right hand, and my arm looked like ground chuck, but I'd kept the limb and it still worked well enough. The doctor gave me a very stern look when she lectured me on just how lucky I was. That was followed by a lengthy visit from a man in a sheriff's uniform who tried to get me to tell him who I was and why I was in Colby and, more importantly, what the hell had happened to me. I tried to lie to make up a story they'd actually believe, but I couldn't. It was like the lie had wired my teeth shut, and I could feel that that was what it was. I could think it, sure, but I couldn't say it. So I danced around the truth, telling them I'd been thrown from a train, and I didn't really know what the toothy thing was that had almost torn off my arm. I said a guy pulled it off of me, dragged it away somewhere. Then I told them I was too tired to talk anymore, and that wasn't a lie at all. The deputy tried to push me on the details about who I was and where I was from, but the doctor scolded him and pushed him out of the room. He said over his shoulder that he'd be back the absolute second he found out I was feeling better. I was slightly relieved that he didn't seem to actually give a shit about my health. That meant he wasn't likely to round up a posse and go rousting the rails for a likely suspect. I didn't want some other drifter getting lynched on my account, or some innocent dog getting shot. The doctor was a nice lady with short, professional hair and comfortable shoes. Her name was Vanessa Klimt, Dr. Vanessa Klimt, that is. She said she'd never seen somebody's arm as chewed up as mine that hadn't been sucked up into some sort of farming implement. She spent a week making sure I didn't ruin her good work by over- or underworking the arm. If we were any closer to civilization, she told me, we'd have already turned you over to social services. She crossed her arms and smiled wickedly, cocking out a hip, 
as it stands, maybe I'll just put you to work in the clinic, have you wash out bedpans and run food so you can work off my surgery bill. I told her I wouldn't mind that. She rolled her eyes, letting me know it wasn't really an option. Social services were coming, whether I told them who I was or not, by the end of the week. I suggested I might run away before then. She glared at me for real, threatening to have the deputy handcuff me to the bed. I agreed to behave, and she generally left me alone after that. I gathered the story of how I'd survived piece by piece, mostly based on the questions folks asked me in the days following my wake-up. Why were you up on the abandoned tracks north of town? Who helped you during the attack? Was it a dog that bit you? Why didn't they bring you to town after they put a tourniquet on your arm? Who was the girl in the red dress banging on doors in town, screaming that a kid was about to die on the tracks and needed help? Friend of yours? I did die, too, in those intermediary days. Twice, Dr. Klimp told me. The first time I went into cardiac arrest was maybe five seconds after they got me into the operating room. The second was an hour after that, during the second stage of the surgery. I don't remember most any of that. What I do remember is the dreams I had between falling asleep on that hill and waking up in a paper dress in a hospital room. Dreams of red people dancing in a void of infinite black. Dreams of a great city that covered nearly all the eastern side of this country and a flock of black birds flying out of that city to cover the entire world. And I dreamed of my daughter and the odd life she'd live and how I'd cursed myself to never be a part of it. I broke out of the hospital a day ahead of social services arriving. I snuck into another room and stole a girl's clothes while she was getting her appendix removed. She was bigger than me, but not by much. And so I was a girl again when I went to find the spot where my father died. It wasn't much. There wasn't even a stain. I walked in and out of the bank twice, looking at the tellers, standing where I think the woman might have been standing when my dad's partner tried to round her up. She'd caused a big hullabaloo, snuck out in the commotion. Dad had been set up to get the drop on Lightning T. Daniels, who was famous around the country for being a silver-tongued rogue, but in real life was just a junkie who knocked over banks to feed his habit. His partner, who they called Junebug, snuck up behind my dad and snatched his pistol out of his holster. She shot him, and he died almost instantly. Dad's partner, a man named Harold Lovejoy, quit the FBI a short time later and basically disappeared from the face of the earth. He'd never forgiven himself for what happened. I met him once, at Dad's funeral, and he'd said just that. I stood at the corner of the alley where my father died, pretending to be her, pretending to be the June bug. I saw him standing there like a ghost, as unknowable then as he'd been to me in real life. She'd seen as much of him as I had most days. Just the back of a typical man in a suit, a man preoccupied with something else. Always preoccupied, 
never really noticing the women in his life. And then that last woman in his life had walked up on him and killed him for that. I took my imaginary father's pistol out of his coat pocket and pointed it at his back. Bang. I whispered, my little finger gun kicking back from pretend recoil. I dropped it to my side and looked up and down the block. Men and women went in and out of the bank, all of them busy, moving to the places they needed to be. Birds danced with each other in the street. Sparrows, looking for a nest. I tried to find some greater meaning in my journey, but it eluded me. Sometimes, there was nothing to learn. A woman who'd never met me was a bigger part of my life than almost anybody else ever would be. And I was probably the same to more than a few folks I'd run across in mine. I heard a train pull into the station on the south end of town, knowing, in the way it echoed, that it was heading west. I put my hands in the pockets of the stolen dress and headed for the train station. There are demons in this great land of ours, but plenty enough decent people to put a stop to them when needs be. They and all the rest of us move along these great, glittering stretches of steel and asphalt. Lives cutting across lives, separating and splicing them and making new things of old things. Intricate stitching and a quilt too big for any of us to see. A blanket of stars beneath which all of us lay, some knowing their purpose, most only guessing at it. I looked to the west and knew what lay ahead and behind me. Come death or design... I had found myself out there in the unforgiving dirt of the American plains. My father had died. My mother lost her mind. And I... I rode the rails. Written April 18th, 2018 to May 5th, 2018. Louisville, Kentucky. Well, that was Toda Americana part final. What a ride, huh? Have you ever had to confront an ugly part of your past to grow as a person? Have you ever summoned a lingering revenant to personally hang a lesser god? Let me know in the West Side Fairy Tales discussion group, which we call the West Side Fairy Tales Whore and Lit Club on Facebook. We have a regular page there under West Side Fairy Tales, but the Horror and Lit Club is a great place to talk with other fans about the episodes, the recommendations, and even start up your own conversations about horror and writing and whatever else comes to mind. You can also send me a message personally at westsidefairytales at gmail.com or hop on Twitter at WSFairyTales or Instagram at westsidefairytales. If you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes. I read literally every comment, and it's a great way to help us rise through the ratings. We've been growing quite a bit lately, but we still have a long way to go, and that minute or so you spend on iTunes could really make the difference. If you really like the show and just want to send us some cash, then hop on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Tales. We have tons of additional content for you to access there, basically 
upping your West Side Fairy Tales intake to four audio programs per month at the $5 level. For just a buck, you get early access to the regular show and access to update audio where I ramble and try to get you to laugh. You'll also get early access to the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club audio cast where I go in depth on the month's book and random horror recommendations. And for those of you who aren't on Patreon and don't already know, the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club podcast is on the main feed now. It's uh, in addition to the normal podcast, and don't worry, it won't be replacing the West Side Fairy Tales or detracting from it at all. Really, it's just a way for me to connect with you guys more in a casual way, so you can get to know me better. The Lit Club podcasts aren't necessary to understand the West Side Fairy Tales canon either, so feel free to skip them if you aren't interested. But thanks ahead of time if you decide to check them out. Next month on the West Side Fairy Tales, the final episode of Season 3, in which a man quits a job he hates to become a sort of homeless poet, potentially saving thousands of lives in the process. I hope you'll join us for the last episode of the season before our temporary summer hiatus, ice and alley walking. And, until then, as always, stay safe out there. The West Side Fairy Tales is written, read, scored, and produced by Tyler Bell. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2019, Tyler Bell. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. 
Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.